You are listening to another episode of Geek USA, a podcast dedicated to the nerdier side of music, movies, and television. And we are your hosts. My name is James. And my name is Carl. And on this episode, we are going to take a look at an all-time classic album, Failure's Fantastic Planet. All right, so Carl, this week we are going to be taking on a classic record. Uh, we haven't done a podcast like this before. I guess we've talked about individual records, but we, we wanted to highlight some of the classic albums in our in our shared collections that we feel like, uh, you know, whether or not they're universally agreed on as classic albums, we feel like they're classic albums. And rather than dive into an entire band's discography, like let's highlight some of these, these lesser bands uh, that, that maybe this one album stands apart from everything else. Uh, what is your definition of a classic album? Do you have a, a thought on that? Um, I don't know. There's kind of two definitions to that. There is an album that everybody would just say is defining for that band. Um, and I think there's some people that's kind of hard to narrow down because I think, you know, for bands like Black Sabbath, that's rough because everybody talks about the first mm-hmm. four Black Sabbath albums and nobody ever talks about one of them. Um, you know, and, and, and bands like Judas Priest have like a really long career. You know what I mean? So it's always really hard to nail it down, <clears throat> I think. But in a general sense, that's the um, that's the big goal is, you know, the, the album that defines the band that everybody knows. And I think that when we talk about a band that nobody knows, like Failure, um, I guess the benchmark for classic album is the, you know, the album among their fans. You know, what would it be? So, um I, that's kind of how I see it. Like, you know, if, if I had to pick an album from that band that kind of just, you know, this is the album, you know, if, if the if you had to pick one and not any of the other ones, I guess this is the one you would pick. So, I, yeah, so I, I think that we will just put this out there now uh, in lieu of anybody's uh, anybody having any questions or comments on this a classic album. The term classic is very very subjective. So we are deciding what we think the classic <laughs> album is, and uh, you know we're going to just roll with that. And I think that we feel like, you know, the the, th- the trick of this was going to be. So we were talking about like Ozzy Osbourne's a good example. Wouldn't everybody say Blizzard of Oz? I would. Seven out of ten Ozzy fans would say that's their his best album. Well, I don't want to talk about Blizzard of Oz. I love Blizzard of Oz, but we're going to talk about No More Tears. You know, like that was going to be, I think, kind of what we wanted to kind of what we wanted to do kind of what we wanted to askew was just the you know try to avoid just doing the stereotypical unanimous vote maybe pick something that we thought you know pick pick albums that we thought were were going to be interesting to the audience interesting to us and aren't the no-brainers like we're not going to do the white album i'm not telling you the white album isn't a great album jesus christ no yes it's been done to death i'm sure there are 50 beatles podcasts out there so we're gonna so this week we are going to talk about, you've already mentioned it, the band Failure. And for those who don't know, you're probably not listening at this point because who cares, right? But if you do know, and I think Failure is one of those, yeah, they're one of those shit. perfect bands that that are, you know, very, very influential 
Uh, a lot of artists will cite them as an influence, but they just never really garnered the same level of success as their contemporaries. And so failure, you know, an, uh, their heyday was, you know, the mid 90s, an alternative rock band that was in a lot of ways a third tier band. You know, they didn't see the success that a Nirvana or a Soundgarden or a Pearl Jam saw. They, they didn't have, you know, t- number one albums and, and millions of units sold. But but those who liked them loved them. And I think in the way that you have like niche films and niche anything, you know, they kind of found their own niche and ended up inspiring an entire generation of musicians. Uh, so this this album in particular, Failure's third record, Fantastic Planet, is I think universally regarded as their crowning achievement. And in recent years, they just released an EP a few weeks back. They released an album a couple years back. They've, they've gotten back together and are doing some stuff. So I think this was a good time to... Uh, to dive into this now, Carl. Do you have? Do you? Do you? I don't remember like how you came to failure. What What are your memories of this record or, or discovering this band? I think you just told me I need to check out this record. Um, I I think that's how it worked out. Uh, I think that's how a lot of it works out. Um, and I, I think it's very rare that I say, "Hey, you got to check this out." It's usually the other way around. Um, and so I did. And it's it's odd. It's funny too because. I kind of like your failure and a lot of the uh, subsequent just Ken Andrews, every other project. And I hear, I kind of hear a lot of the similarities and I don't know. I, I don't hear a ton, um, a ton. I, I hear some, I, I don't hear like a solid album in the first two um, of the uh, failure albums or uh, as compared to this one. So for me, yeah, I kind of listened to this and then went back and, and for really my interest in failure and Ken Andrews in general really just kind of starts with this record. Yeah, let's and so that's that's a good place to start. Let's jump into maybe giving a little background here. So failure, you know, very much is the union of Greg Edwards and Ken Andrews. And I won't kill, I won't waste too much time on their backstory, but essentially... They're an L.A. band. They formed in 1990, uh, and they their first record they recorded as a three-piece. They recorded with Steve Albini, who you know, famously recorded Nirvana, would go on to record Nirvana's In Utero. In Utero. And Steve Albini had a very, he has a very specific way of recording. He tracks bands live. He's a minimalist. Uh, he doesn't even like the term producer. He prefers to just be called an engineer. Uh, and so their first record, Comfort, was released in 1992, and it's cool. I know the rec- the band is probably less excited about the record than than fans are. I I actually think the record's genius, but but it <laughs> you know it wasn't. It was the sound. It was it sounds very punk rock. It's the sound of an alt rock band. Uh, you know, basically rehearsing is the way I would describe Comfort, and uh, it sounds very live and very yeah. minimally overdubbed. And Kenny Andrews, especially the the singer. You know, primary guitarist in the band had 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 envisioned something better and bigger and more grand. So their next release, Magnified, would be released in 1994. And for those who don't know, this is the famous Beavis and Butthead and and the Frog video, where Beavis and Butthead are watching the video, and there's the frog, and they're just like talking about this frog the whole time. That's the first time I remember hearing about failure was on Beavis and Butthead in 1994. So so Magnified gets released, and it 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 garners you know the the, the the single Moth, uh, the single uh, Undone, you know, they, they have a couple singles that that do something, get some play on MTV and on Beavis and Butthead. And so with that, you know, they get a chance to make a third record. And while Magnified, again, is a better sonic step forward for the band, it, they still didn't feel like they were capturing what they were looking for. So Carl, come 1996, 
the band decides to rent a beach house owned by none other than Lita Ford. It decides to, to shelter away and write and record what is going to be their third album. And they decide they're going to work without a producer and without an engineer. And they're really just going to do it on their own. And it to say that from humble expectations, sometimes comes, comes the greatest pieces of art uh, would be an understatement here. Because I, the, the band didn't really have a plan. They didn't really have songs written. They basically just went in and as they wrote, they recorded and kind of through that this process ended up creating not only a concept record with strong thematic elements, but like we said earlier, one of the touchstone records for what you would call, I guess, post-rock, space rock, alt-rock, post-rock. I mean, it, it there's so much going on here that that becomes influential to like this next generation of bands, but really they, they released Fantastic Planet in August of 1996, and other than me and like a a friend I had in high school. I don't think anybody bought it uh, or cared. And they had one minor single, and that was that. So, Carl, talk to me about, you know, this time leading up to it. Were you aware of failure in the mid-'90s, or was this a band you learned about after the fact? Um, I Well, I don't know if my introduction to them was or wasn't in the 90s. I, I don't remember. I certainly wasn't made aware of them through listening to music in the 90s. It certainly was through you telling me, hey, check out this album. So, no, I, I would say uh, through the 90s, I was really, truly not aware um, of failure at all. Um, for whatever reason, you know, I, I wasn't the oldest lad in the early to mid '90s, mm -hmm. so you know, my level of paying attention to such things was wasn't going to be super big. I mean, there's a year and a half or two year difference between the two of us, and I, I don't know. That just makes a world of difference for who's paying attention to what and when. Oh, know? absolutely. So no, um, I on yeah, I the, the '90s did not introduce me, nor did I have a clue about failure. Hmm, interesting. So let's talk here for a second about. The album itself. The before we go into track by track, uh, Fantastic Planet is 67 minutes long. It's a 17 track album, and it is it is a it coincides. The album cover uh, is based on the L. Ron Hubbard novel Return to Tomorrow. So I I don't know that any of the members of Failure are Scientologists, but as I've mentioned multiple times in here, I'm fascinated by Scientology. And apparently if you're a Scientologist, you're rich. So if I could be rich <laughs> and I had to be a Scientologist, I would choose that because, of course, who doesn't Sign want me money? up. Sign me up. Uh, the band produced the record themselves. They wrote and recorded the songs kind of as they went. It's interesting, there's a French film that, you know, the the theme Fantastic Planet uh, is actually, it's the title of a French cartoon that I ended up, I remember watching at a friend's house once. It was this trippy, trippy-ass film, dude. And uh, I don't know that it has anything to do with the story, and I don't really know that there is a story. It's kind of the genius of the lyrical content on the record. It seems like, you know, Greg Edwards and uh, Ken Andrews are kind of credited as doing everything together. Uh, but they were writing about each other because this is the sound, uh, much like the you know the record rumors. This is a sound of a band basically breaking up while they're recording an album. So again, adding a, a really good strong layer of you know emotional content to to the record. Let's talk about let's talk let's dive into this thing track by track. So why don't why don't you kick us off? We're gonna kick off with the opener, Saturday Savior, um, which is. It's a real it, it's a it's a good opener for an album. I actually would have preferred uh, the second track as an opener. Um, either way, uh, it's you know really it, it's it's hard to say no. Yeah, I always thought the second one would have made a better opener. I don't know why. Um, 
Like, not that it really matters too much. It doesn't really affect much, just off the top of my head. But, yeah, Saturday Savior's good. It's it's kind of slow. It's plotting. Um, and it, it's really odd, too, because it's got kind of a thick sound, which I'm going to lay a lot of credit to the uh, bass and drums, uh, because the guitar, I don't know, there, there doesn't seem to be... A, there, to the core guitar tracks on each of the tunes, there doesn't seem to be a lot of difference from one song to the other. Uh, the, 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 it seems like the core rhythm guitar to every track here is kind of clean, and it's only more distorted if he hits it harder, and that's just kind of how it sounds, which creates this kind of like um, like Stone Temple Pilots jangle to it, which is really cool, while the bass, I think, kind of has like a heavier tone, and the drums are just kind of bombastic. So, um, But great tune. Um, great lyrics and, and whether I, whether it's my favorite opener or not it's it's still a really good way to kick the door open and kind of go you know so i really do dig saturday savior it's 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 super solid yeah i remember i my first memory of like really listening to failure i i remember i was with a friend doing god knows what on a friday night and we stopped at a record store and he bought this it had just come out so like you know obviously like this is the soundtrack to your evening and i remember thinking like I had an idea of what failure was, probably because of the the singles off Magnify, and I thought of them as this kind of dungy, more aggressive band. This song was no, like nothing I was expecting them to sound like, and uh, it it isn't really necessarily uh, indicative of the whole record, but it it is a interesting, and it's it because it doesn't really hit you in the face. It's not like you know most album openers are like a big bang, and this is more of a a slow brooding song. Uh, it doesn't. I, I could see what you're saying is that maybe it's not the best opener, but I think it's a genius track. And probably the thing I love best about Saturday yeah. Savior is it's just one chord progression for, you know, five minutes. And somehow it doesn't feel repetitive. <laughs> and I've always thought that there's a genius to songwriting that, you know, the ultimate, if you're to write a good song is to write something that's simple but catchy, you know, and, and to kind of reduce things down, the ultimate form of that. And there's a, you know, there's a list you can Google it of uh, pop songs that are, are only one chord progression, and you'd be surprised how many great classic songs are simply three or four chords over and over again, with dynamics and, and vocals being that which separates the parts. Uh, and it's I've always that's hard to do. It's hard to there's no room for error. You know, it's it's got to be the right four chords. It's got to be the right melodies, or absolutely, or otherwise it's trite and, and forgettable. Uh, just ask, oh, I don't want to slam anybody. Just ask Godsmack. I feel like they've got a, a handful of songs like that where you're like, <laughs> yep, yeah, you guys, you, we get it. You can do that. So, yeah, I think yeah. it's... Tell me to stay away from you one more time over that same chord progression. That would be great. Yeah, exactly. This is a... <laughs> man, what you said about the guitar tones and stuff, the, the thing you'll notice is unlike the first two Failure records, which both have a charm, a DIY kind of production charm, this record sounds amazing. And I'm going to talk about this a lot over the course of this podcast, but the production on this record uh, is unparalleled, in my opinion. I, I think the drums, they have this nice, warm, organic sound. Like you said, it's it's a guitar tone that, you know, I don't know what he's playing through or what he's playing. They probably, you know, from the way it sounds like they recorded the record, they didn't really overthink any of it. So it wasn't like they spent six months no. dialing in tones. It just, I think it's like the sound of a band that is quote unquote dialed in after playing for six years that they kind of just went into, you know, a secluded, you know, space and made this amazing record. But Carl, I think Saturday Savior sounds amazing. I love the vocal. I love the lyric. Uh, kind of. Again, there's this double entendre that works throughout the album that, you know, a lot of these songs feel like they could be about relationships, like whether it's a relationship with a romantic tinge or a friendship type deal. 
Uh, and then there's also this kind of like, I guess you would say drug element, you know, like uh, it almost feels like the entire record is written as an ode to, you know, to somebody's personal demon or addiction. Any which way you slice it, perfectly vague, perfectly memorable. This song is genius. Carl, that leads us into track two, Sergeant Politeness. Uh, I like this song. You know, for a long time, I always felt like it was a weird choice to have in the beginning of the record because it's not one of the stronger melodies. It's not as catchy as some of the other tracks like Leo or, or uh, you know, Dirty Blue Balloons. It doesn't have like a super sing-along chorus, but then I realized... Uh, a couple years back that I was a moron and actually it is super catchy it's just catchy in that failure way that we're not going to it's not a super obvious melody that's running through it but the lyrics are genius and yeah this song again uh hits hard and you're what you just said about it being an album op- album opener is an interesting idea because you're right I think this would have been a genius choice so uh give me your thoughts on Sergeant Politeness it might be my favorite track on the album I'm <sighs> not sure um, because there's a lot of really great tracks in the album, but um, in fact, actually, I might just say every track is might be my favorite track in the album, um, with the exception of one. But we'll get there. But yeah, no, Sergeant Politeness is great. It it might be one of the heaviest ones on the album. Um, they just have that kind of like they have like they, this song has like a really true like alternative rock riff to it, um, and it just it's I don't know it, it's so cool. The drums and his singing really do kind of like make it to um it's it just kind of grinds like grinds in like a really good way i don't really know what um god i don't know a whole lot else to say about sergeant politeness except that uh you know i i, I think it would have made a, a little bit of a better opener but not really by much you know Sar- a saturday savior is great but yeah i love the way that this song kind of just grinds and pushes and it and you're right it doesn't really have much of a melody to it um he just sings it in such a great way like in just kind of like uh that's probably the most aggressive he could sing something. Mm-hmm. Uh, he doesn't really have like an aggressive voice, but he really does kind of attack this well, and I like it. Um, I like it a lot. And then we lead into Segway One, which is just noise. Um, it's interesting noise. It's kind of catchy noise. I often find myself humming that one, that first Segway, I think more than the other ones. But it's going to be kind of a theme on this album is at least they don't. At least, I don't know. I think a lot of times bands try to make these noise tracks and they try to hide it as something. And now here they just call it Segway, which I think works really well because it does go really well into Smoking Umbrellas too. Yeah, absolutely. So, the, yeah, the Segways are something that they would, you know, it was genius, I think, on this record especially. And then they, they will talk about it at the end. They kind of, I think, overdo it on the next record. But uh, kind of cool. Uh, again, you know the the fan the French film Fantastic Planet. I feel like some of these sound effects were lifted directly from the tape in that film, uh, really? the spoons and all of that. Which is, uh, it's an interesting. I don't know how all of that works with like clearing rights and stuff, but I think it's a it's an interesting idea that you're going to create, you know, kind of like these callbacks to what is essentially like a you know a, a a super tripped out like you know science fiction cartoon uh that may or may not have anything to do with your record and i think maybe they were just watching it while they're recording it i want to talk real quick about kelly scott before i go into the next track so kelly scott is the main difference here between magnified and fantastic planet now the band released golden which was like a greatest hits collection uh, a few years after they broke up and it was there was a documentary in there, so a lot of the information I'm I'm going to kind of talk about comes from that. You can watch it on YouTube. But basically, 
when they were recording Magnified, they were kind of between drummers. They had a drummer on some of the tracks, but a large part of the record was Ken and Greg basically just like programming drums. And the way they were programming the drums is they were like, you know, like one of them would record the kick drum all the way through to a song because neither of them could really play. And so I think they ended up, you know, like doing drum tracks and then like dropping in samples of they basically did what you or I have done in the past, which is they like ham sandwich together, (laughs) you know, a drum performance and it works and it's really cool. But, you know, a lot of the material has almost like a, you know, kind of a faux new wave feel because of that. And I I love that. I love processed drums. I think I like it's a big element of a lot of the music I like, but Fantastic Planet, they went out and they secured the services of Kelly Scott, who is an amazing drummer. And his drums not only like sound great in the mix and are recorded well, but he's a he has a really unique style. And I had I remember you probably know that remember these conversations. We had a coworker once who was a big fan of this record and would always talk about the toms. Drummers don't use toms enough. I love failure. All the songs, heavy, just lots of toms, you know, lots of like really percussive elements. And I well, this next is right. And yeah, the way and the way they're used in this, I mean they could the pro, the thing with toms is Tom's, I don't know, it just seems like historically, especially up and through to the 80s, Tom's weren't something that were very booming. They were they were something that were very tuned and they were very, uh, I don't know, they, 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 they just weren't boomy. And I think a lot of 90s rock acts, rock acts started kind of just using them to like just get bombastic with them. Um, I, I think that, uh, I think Dave Grohl was kind of, was, was kind of like one of those, but it still wasn't like widespread. But yeah, the way Craig Edwards bangs those is just fucking great well i mean a good example of what dave grohl is when you think of the song my hero you probably most people probably drink think of the drum intro uh which you know it's uh, exactly what it's I the most of. interesting part of the song and it, it's kind of throughout the entire song and that song is a drum song it's a great song it's a very melodic song but it's interesting without you know it's it's almost all toms it's a very and it's yeah. what's his name from silver chair was a big fan of just banging the snot out of his floor tom i loved it so track four smoking umbrellas uh, is a good example, and you see it on Sergeant Politeness too. But a song where like the drums are driving, and uh, throughout the verses, especially, there's this kind of counterpoint to the vocal melody, which is very—it's uh, not tribal, it's not in a tribal way, but it's very like droning, and it's really the toms and Greg Edwards, Greg Edwards bass that like just lock in. Uh, and there's a couple songs that do this on this record, but this would be an example of when I was listening to this record in 1997 or 98, I never heard a band. I'd never heard that before. It's it's not punk. It's not like your your classic like go go drum like you know you know tom and bass interlock for the verse and then smashing into a chorus. It's something different. But yeah, smoking umbrellas is uh, again along with Sergeant Politeness one of the more aggressive tracks on the album. And uh, I have no idea what the lyrics are about, but I think it's genius. So talk to me about this track. This track, you, you cut out on me a little bit. Talk to there. me about smoking um, umbrellas. Are we on, yes, thank you. I'm so sorry. Um, I think I moved around here. My phone, uh, I found a dead spot in my room. Uh, yeah, smoking umbrellas is great, and it's not. It's odd because it's not a fast song. It's not like a particularly heavy tune, um, but it it, it kind of has a plodding nature until he gets to the chorus and he's just yelling it out. Um, and God, I love the chorus on here. It's a you know, it's a lot like Sergeant Politeness. There really isn't a catchy melody. Um, there's just him yelling the chorus, and it's great. I don't know what the lyrics are about. I just know that they fit with the meter of him yelling it. Um, 
and he's he's got such a great voice for that. In my opinion, I think a lot of the stuff that he does sans failure. Um, I just don't think he does that enough. Uh, I he, he's he's got a great voice when it comes to melody, and I think he uses that fine. But man, he really just knows how to wail on something when he needs to, and he doesn't have like that. You know, he doesn't have that impressively high, um, you know, Chris Cornell kind of voice to it. He just he knows knows how to belt it out, and he does a really good job. Um, Smoking Umbrellas might be one of my favorite tracks on the album. Uh, it's fantastic. Absolutely great track. Um, Pillowhead, it, and kind of a, a little bit different, and the next track being Pillowhead, that one's just kind of a faster track. Um, and it, it doesn't have, it doesn't really have like a discernible riff to the verse. It's just, I'm not even sure that there is a, um, a relationship between the notes being played between the uh, bass and the acoustic guitar and whatnot versus what he's mm-hmm. singing. Um, it just seems to be really well defined by this kind of not not in a key kind of chromatic with sounds chromatic kind of a riff um, with just him giving a really good I don't singing or whatever he's doing the the meter of what he's giving for the verse here um, it just works really well and again another chorus without like a really catchy melody but there's just kind of like a dissonance to it and he just makes it work and I I, again, I, I I catch myself humming this tune all, almost all the time, and again, might be one of my favorite tracks on the yeah, album. Yeah, Pillowhead is. I think we we tried covering this song once. Uh, it's a deceivingly simple <laughs> song. It is. It's two minutes. It's just a verse and a chorus. It rips. The drum fills between each chorus break, which are slightly different. One's slightly different than the other, but they're just these like heavy tom fills are genius man the song hits so hard but again not in a metal way not really in a punk way and you're right the melody is just slightly off kilter from the work underneath which i i you know ken andrew is probably one of the greatest assets of his voice is it's just really unique he doesn't really you know he doesn't sound like you know any of the other 90s alt rock guys they they weren't doing that thing they're not there's not there's not like the the Allison Chains harmonies. There's not the high pitched wail. There's not the baritone that you know Scott Weiland and then, and Eddie Vedder had going on. He just kind of has his own deal. And uh, this track, I think, really caps off to me what is like the first third of the album, uh, which is just kind of it, beginning with Saturday Savior, which isn't a ripper, but but is is a you know I would say a more aggressive song. It's just one after the other, uh, just kind of crushing you, and then. And then we end up with Blank, which is the sixth track and the first real ballad of the record. I of There's three ballads on here, and of all of the ballads, I think Blank is probably the the one I, I am least into. I think the lyrics are great. It just that there's not really much of a hook to it, uh, which is fine. Again, that, that guitar sound, though, that you see on Saturday Savior, that, like, I don't know. It's it's clean. It's a clean, overdriven guitar sound that makes up the bed of the track. It's just great, yeah. and the drums are. It's a great performance from the band. Uh, I like Blank. I listened to the whole record all the way through, and I listened to it. But it is probably the one song that, if I was going to skip a song, eh, you know, to this might be it. Uh, mm-hmm. Talk to me about Blank. This is this is the one I skip. I, I skip. I don't like this tune very much. Um, I skip it. It's it's the one song on the album I really don't like. Um, it's it just it, I, it's boring. Um, it, it doesn't it doesn't have a really great production quality to it. 
doesn't really have any great noise scapes to it and i don't know his singing on it just doesn't connect with me it's it's essentially all the stuff i like about the album it, almost none of that exists yes. here um which is fine you know not every track's going to be a winner it, it, it's probably not a bad track and it's just not my thing you know um in in it, it's just it's just something that's there to me so i skip it it doesn't add anything for as far as the album goes to me it doesn't really take anything away um we get the uh, the second segue we get after that one and it's again it's just it's another it's another neat little noisecape it's there's nothing um i i don't know anything about that cartoon so when you say a lot of this is uh a lot of the noises are taken uh from it um i'm gonna take your word on it because i'm not familiar with it but um they're they're really good about just catchy bits of noise um for whatever that's worth maybe they could or couldn't make these completely into songs or not but it's interesting it's not it's not like where there's a lot of um, a lot of noise tracks on, with a lot of other bands' albums that just don't seem to fit, or they seem like they're a joke. You know, the noises here kind of seem to fit the theme a little bit. So I, I actually listen to the segues more than I listen to Blank. Yeah, I would agree, and that's it's interesting that all three segues. I feel like the songs are sandwiched in between. They work in a in a way of kind of connecting or bridging those first two tracks. You know, the first segue. Uh, taking you from Sergeant Politeness into Smoking Umbrellas, it, it it's cool because while it's not necessarily musically connected, it it gives you it almost serves as like a bridge between two really aggressive tracks. Uh, Carl, Dirty Blue Balloons is conversely, I think, very much cut from the same cloth of Blank, and and maybe that's my issue with Blank is you've got two kind of ballads sitting next to each other, but in every way, I think Dirty Blue Balloons is is one of the highlights of the record for me. Similar formula. Similar, uh, you know, kind of soft, pensive verse leading into a crushing chorus. Kind of similar to the Saturday Savior motif. Uh, uh, you know, the tempo is down. It's not an upbeat song. But the uh, genius of the lyrics, again, with the kind of uh, double entendre drug use, uh, which I've never been a drug abuser. I don't know anything about drug use. But uh, the the genius of these out al- of these of the, a lot of the lyrics on this album is that it makes sense on a lot of levels and whether you're you're talking about a, a bad relationship with a person or a bad relationship with heroin uh it is a <laughs> the, the lyrics worth work both ways and I, i've always thought of like when people talk about the album dirt by allison chains it's kind of the same thing it's 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 an it's an impressive album because it gives you from a lyrical standpoint such a uh such a focused concise view on something that is so arresting and so uh so dark and i think this album does the same thing but in a less on the nose sort of way if yeah. if that makes any sense and this is an example of that i love this song i love the chorus it's one of the most uh most memorable choruses i think in their catalog i think it's a great lyric great performance and again just the way the band sounds the guitars especially when the when the heavy choruses i dirty blue balloons uh you have said Sergeant Plightness might be your favorite song on the album. This might be my favorite song on the album. Go figure, because I think it's probably a sleeper track for most people. But I dig this track a lot. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it, it's you know, it, it's it's hard not to. Um, I, I mean, I wouldn't make it my favorite. Um, but that being said, I mean, there's, I mean, there's really nothing to say that it's not a great track. It, it, it's it's fantastic. I actually uh, sometimes have thought that uh. Ah, I I don't know it because it reminds me a lot of um, 
It reminds me a lot of what they were trying to do with Blank, only like they just did it good, right? They just did it better. It wasn't. Um, it, it, it's kind of like a slower tune, but and it's it's kind of like a ballady type of a tune, but you know they actually have some interesting soundscapes to it eventually. You know what I mean? Like it's like what they could have done with Blank, but um, they just added more to it, you know. And it's I think it's just a much better of that same type of tune it's a much better of what they were trying to accomplish and honestly like i i think if they would have just left blank off and left this in its place i i think the album would be would be i think i would consider it a perfect album instead of a near perfect hmm. album you yeah, know what i mean i do yeah yeah i kind of it, it kind of um it, it kind of makes me think that this is a 9.9 instead of a 10 um but then after dirty blue balloons we go right into solaris and Solaris is another one of those tracks I think might be my favorite <laughs> track on the album. Um, again, he, it's another thing. He's just kind of like attacking that chorus. And it, it, God, I don't know what it is. It's not catchy, but it's memorable. And it just kind of sticks with you. Um, it doesn't have like a, a bright, shining, you know, catchy pop tune to it. Like a lot of alternative rock bands would have like crazy, catchy choruses. Just, um, you know. He's just kind of grinding it out, and it's another one of those just kind of rockers that I love, and I love that it's on the album. It's um, it it really kind of opens up the uh, really kind of how I'll put it this way. It really kind of opens up the second half of the album perfectly. Yeah, and that's a good that's a good call. I feel like uh, much like what you just said. I feel like Dirty Blue Balloons is the close of the first half, and Solaris is the beginning of the second half. And yes, it is a yeah. Uh, I don't know actually how they. I, I never saw it on cassette. I'm not sure how it was broken up, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's how it was. Yeah, Solaris is great. It's a, in my opinion, this run of Dirty Blue Balloons through Leo uh, is is maybe my favorite. Well. I know. I kind of think of the record in thirds. You've got the first five tracks, then you've got this section of songs, uh, and then you've got the, like the last four songs, which I think are all genius. Uh, yeah, I the whole thing's great. I don't know how I'm gonna. I can't rate. I can't <laughs> rank it against itself. Yeah, it's a great track. Uh, as is the as, as is the following track, Pitiful. Now, what's cool about Pitiful is it's uh, not dissimilar to like Smoking Umbrellas or Sergeant Politeness. This is one of the more aggressive tracks again, and it's again a, a song built around a riff as opposed to a chord progression, but I really, the riff has kind of got this like off time feel, and so I really like the juxtaposition of the kind of straight ahead four four rock you get on the verses, and then they plow into these choruses, which are super memorable, but again not in a super catchy way. Which I think, when I think about records I've gone back to and listened to time and time again over the years, this is near the top of the list, and it's you often wonder what gives a record staying power. Why do I revisit this? But you know, maybe something that was catchier that I enjoyed more immediately, I didn't go back to as much. And I think part of that is the magic of failure. Uh, there, the the melodies aren't going to beat you over the head. It's not a song that's going to, st- other than you know maybe one track on this album where they were doing it on purpose. They're not they're not going to write something that's going to stick in your head necessarily. But but there's enough of a a grain of that there to to make it accessible when you revisit it. I I think there's just so many layers to a lot of these songs that I. It, that's that gives it revisiting value but pitiful is one of those more straight ahead songs there's not a lot going on underneath but it just rocks and again you know the the kind of the bass and drums interlocking as a foundation it just if nothing else it's just a great rock and roll song so what are your thoughts on pitiful yeah it is really just a great rock and roll song it's i 
it's kind of more of a straightaway song, like especially kind of for alternative rock. I think actually this one, um, we kind of get two of these in a row, but with Pitiful, it's it's a riff um, and a vocal, and it, it's it, it's a little more alternative rock, I think, than a lot of the rest of the album, um, which is cool. Uh, and it not and not in like a generic way, you know, still in kind of that failure way. Um, but Pitiful, again, might be one of my favorite songs on the album. And uh, I think the whole album's like one of my favorite songs on the album. But uh, Pitiful is fantastic. It's it's another, like I said, just kind of opens with a riff and just kind of continues forward. And he's just belting it out again. And uh, I love it. Uh, Leo is kind of another one of those um, where, where it's a little more of like an alternative rock song. I think as you would envision alternative rock in the nineties um, it, it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of comical a little bit with the lyrics and I don't know who Leo is or what they're singing about, but I think the song is genius. It again might be my favorite song in the album. Um, but I think that a uh, pitiful and Leo is just a really awesome one, two punch. Um, I dig them both. I dig them both a ton. I actually think that Pitiful and Leo, if you were to buy this on vinyl, Pitiful and Leo kick off the second vinyl, like in a row. And I just think it's like a great one too. I love oh, it. Oh, really? That's awesome. Yeah, I didn't. I, I, I was, I, I was looking when you said we're going to do a podcast on Fantastic Planet. And since you bought me, um, since you got me that vinyl player, um, I've been, every time we talk about doing an album, I go look for it on vinyl. So I was looking at failure on vinyl the other day and it's two, right? So it comes to, and the side a of the second one starts off with pitiful and Leo, I think. Oh, that's genius. Yeah. I, that would be a record. I, I, yeah, it's cool. I should own that. I know it's in print or it was, it might be out of print now again, Carl, the third segue, I think it's the best segue. It's the longest. It's the one that's probably most a uh, fully formed instrumental. And uh, I think that it is, uh, you know, like you said, Pitiful and Leo working together as a one-two punch. Kind of this segue comes as the perfect, I guess, breaking point between the final, the first, you know, two-thirds and the final third of the record. Because the rest of the record, we just run one song into another, and it really is kind of the thematic close of it. But this segue, I think, really, really does a good job of setting that all into motion. So let me talk about the segue and then and kind of, what comes after it yeah it's uh again it's it, you're right this is probably the most um it's probably the most like formed soundscape on it that they have that you know like one step shy of actually being a song but you know um it, it's not just as kind of as come and go as the other ones it really does kind of go into like the next track, the news who love me really well. Again, I think that all the segues kind of do that. And that was probably part of the point, but the uh, nurse who loved me is probably the, it, it's like the best song that starts off slow and quiet. And that kind of builds into something loud on the album. And in fact, it might be one of my favorite songs that does that. And I'm not typically a big fan of those mm-hmm. songs. Um, I, I I think that this song is a lot of what a lot of shoegazer rock tends to yes. do, but then just bores me to death by not actually accomplishing. Yes. You know? Um I, I think I think that like they stare at their shoes too long and then they, they kind of forget to make it something interesting. But um this so it, it, it seems like a it seems like a song that defines like an entire genre of music. Um so I love this tune. I think it's fantastic. It, it, this tune on a lot of other albums, this type of song, it tends to not catch my interest. But again, I don't know, for some reason, um, Failure does it, and I think it's fantastic, and I love every second of it. Yeah, The Nurse Who Loved Me is the 
is probably the song most people are going to be familiar with, even if they're not, because Perfect uh, Perfect Circle covered this on their second record, uh, along with a lot of other artists. Uh, it seems to be the obvious uh, fan favorite, uh, at least when referenced by other bands. This song and the song that comes after it, another space song, I, I agree. When we're talking about this record being influential, when you say shoegazer or post-rock, like these, a lot of those elements are present in these songs, except I think that this... Both of these cases being, you know, around that five-minute mark, they're more to the point and way more enjoyable to listen to. Uh, I think that the thing with The Nurse Who Loved Me is that, again, kind of not unlike uh, a couple of the other tracks on the album, for a long time it wasn't, it was fine, it wasn't like, because again, there's not an overt melody to it. Uh, the chorus is catchy, but it's not super catchy, and I, I don't know what it was, it just never grabbed me, and then I... I guess I'm acting like it was yesterday. It was like 15 years ago when Perfect Circle covered it that I remember like realizing like, oh, this is a genius song, but this is a horrible cover. Like, holy crap, like the failure version is so superior to any cover version I've heard. Uh, and it, it is it is one yeah. of those songs that I think it's it's super, and I don't mean to offend anybody, I just don't think the Perfect Circle version does it any justice, but I think it's it's not just the melody or the lyrics, it's that dynamic, like you said, it's that building that really gives it the impact, and the Perfect Circle version just never does that, so I think it, it kind of just then doesn't really do anything for me, but I, super strong song, obviously very, very interesting, very thought-provoking lyrics. Uh, the next track, another space song, is one of my favorites, again, kind of kind of something that you weren't seeing a lot of done in rock music it's it's not really built around a riff it's kind of just a droning uh musical vamp that they kind of construct the song around and then the lyrics and the melody kind of come by way of the vocals but not or but they're not tethered to the music underneath in that way and i think that that's that kind of point counterpoint that failure does on a lot of points on this record is kind of that becomes very integral to a lot of genres of music uh, in the rock realm that kind of pop up over the following years and it is not all that undifferent from kind of what was going on in the early 80s with your first post-punk stuff you know you know you got drum machines and synthesizers and then vocals and the vocals are the melody they're the melodic instrument you know so it's it's got guitars on it but it's not a it's not a guitar rock song if that makes sense and i think Really, again, yeah. just that Kelly Scott, Greg Edwards bass and drums interplay really defines another space song. The, and interesting to note, the term space rock that is really associated with this album and with this band, you know, largely, I think, is owed to the tracks like Solaris, you know, the, the title being, you know, taken from a, a 1970s science fiction film, another space song, uh, Daylight Heliotropic. They're, they're all kind of invoking that kind of astronaut rock space rock imagery but in a very cool subtle way i i love another space song i think the nurse who loved me through daylight this last like half hour of the record i think is flawless and it's one of my it's one of my favorite pieces of a record of all time and, and this track just fits right in there i love the melody of it talk to me about another space song yeah it this act the song actually i've always thought reminds me a little bit of what the segways uh, segway could have been if it was like a whole tune um i love it it's uh yeah and it's um i could see i could see if there was a whole genre called space rock i could see it being lifted off of this one um i think of it in a little bit similar terms as terms as the nurse who loved me um only this one's a bit noisier you know Th this is kind of like a bit more of a noise rock thing to me and i think it's great um and it's 
I, I think it's kind of like a really good way to I guess if we were gonna split this album up into into fourths. Um, this to me is kind of a really good way to cap a quarter of it off. Um, if you're going to consider stuck on you through the end, like the last quarter of it, but, um, I love another space song. It's again, not my type of a tune when, when a lot of other bands try this, it sounds to me like they're just trying to fill space and they don't do a particularly good job, but, uh, they do it and they do it well. And, and I'm not even mad about it. Um, I, I love it. I love the tune again. We're kind of coming up on the only tune I don't like was blank. Um, that rolls us right into Stuck on You, which kind of captures, how do I put this? This album to me doesn't have a great closer. It's like these three tracks starting with Stuck on You are just the perfect way to close off an album. And, um, I, it, and that's kind of how I feel like the whole album closes with these three tunes starting with Stuck on You. The Stuck on You is probably the catchiest song in a classic sense um, that we would think of like a catchy tune. Uh, I, I, from the intro all the way to the end, I think that, uh, it's fantastic. And again, the hats off to Ken Andrews for just the kind of the way he delivers the vocals on it. Um, really, really snags this for me. I love this song. Yeah, I mean, the genius of the record is kind of encapsulated in the song and that you feel like obviously the literal sense of the lyrics are talking about an earworm, an earworm, a, a song that's so catchy, you can't get it out of your head. And it's in a very literal sense. And then on this other level, yeah. it's a love song. And then on another level, it's like an addiction song. It like works on so many levels. And and what kind of brings it all together is this super saccharine melody, uh, which again would be fitting of a, a catchy song that you couldn't get out of your head. I This is one of those songs that it's the song you should hate. It's the obvious single uh, it was the video. They made a classic video for it. I, you should. It's awesome. I, I can't describe it. You just need to watch it. It's a great video. Great song. Uh, I remember watching this video on MTV. I remember thinking the song was great. I, but I never get sick of listening to it. You know, it's it's one of those. It's it's the catchy, obvious hit that you should want to skip because you've heard it a million times. But it's genius. And again, not unlike Saturday Savior, it's just one four chord progression over and over and over and over for four and a half minutes. Uh, but be, like you said, because of the the genius and kind of the way the vocal melody, which is essentially the same melody for four and a half minutes, but like just the delivery kind of changing, giving separation to the parts, it's just really well done. I think that Stuck on You is, I'm surprised it wasn't a bigger song for them because it, it sonically sounds great. And I mean, when you think about 1997, 98, like this wasn't out of line with, you know, what was going on. You know, you had a lot of... You know, when I think of like Third Eye Blind, Matchbox 20, like, I don't know, this song sits with the, all of that. And I think it was just, you know, the band didn't have the the clout and was probably still, was probably still struggling to, you know, they were, they had toured with Tool. They were, they were liked by a lot of different kinds of fans, but I don't think they had their own fan base on but this this song should have been bigger for them. It was a genius track. That leads us into Heliotropic, which not unlike another space song is another kind of drony uh track. What I love about Heliotropic is the bass and drum which is a very like tom driven drum part. They kind of construct the song again. This is this is like the beginnings of post rock. I mean, this song without vocals, I could listen to for t- forever. I mean, like it's such it's such a hypnotic musical motif, and even at six minutes, it feels like it's it's not long enough. It's a genius bridge between "Stuck on You" and "Daylight," which are very melodic songs, uh, and it is not a 
it's crushing and heavy without, again, really relying on a big guitar riff, which I don't know if anybody... Like, if you play... If you've been in a band, you understand. It's hard to do this. It's hard to... It's hard not to just, like, take a guitar and just hit a big rock chord and want to write something. It's hard to construct songs kind of in a different way while still doing it in a guitar-based drum context, uh, especially when you're a trio. So I... uh, You know, for those... You know, Greg Edwards goes on to form Autolux, which, like, a track like this is kind of a really good indication of the music he's going to create. And Ken Andrews goes on to do Year of the Rabbit and On and some solo stuff. And a track like Stuck on You is a really good indication of, like, what he's going to do. So you really see, like, when you bring the two of them together, you can kind of hear over the course of the record kind of who does what based on what they would go on to do afterwards. And the genius of failure is kind of the combination of those elements, and sometimes even in the same song. And Heliotropic kind of gives you that perfect marriage of, I think, two really different musical perspectives. And then this is what the two of them combined give you, which is something neither of them would probably do on their own. Uh, I can't say enough. Talk to me about Heliotropic. Yeah, it's like, you know what? Uh, it's another one of those tracks that kind of, to me, sounds like one of their segues, but made into a whole tune. Um, and... E- I don't know, man. You would figure it's just a bunch of noise with, you know, it, it, but it's not. It's it's a it's it's really good. Oddly enough, for what it is, uh, it's really catchy. I think the drums for this one is what really makes it catchy for me. Um, I really dig what he can do with drums to make kind of noisy stuff really interesting. Um, and, and I I think Ed, uh, Edward does a great great job on it. But you know, it, to to tie "Stuck on You" and "Daylight" together using a track like "Heliotropic" is perfect. And again. Um, it's 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 part of what makes me think these three tracks on their own make such a great album closer you know um if it was just one of these three tracks closing out the album i don't know that i would think too highly of it but these three tracks in a row to me are just like perfect perfect with one another um and it's a really great example i think of how like a track listing can make or break some songs as far as like you know how you feel about them when you're listening um but heliotropic it after that we get daylight um which it's very repetitive tune and that's kind of the same thing with a lot of uh with heliotropic and and daylight both they tend they they tend to be kind of repetitive but daylight the most probably the most repetitive track on the album um but it works so good there's not a lot to it um it's just some a really good melody uh leading up into this big chorus of pretty much one word with it's like a lot of big noise um it sounds a bit differently produced i think from some of the tones somehow they made this song bigger um than the other songs on the album and it really works for them it really works to close out the album um again might be one of my favorite songs on the album it's just a it's just a near perfect tune yeah daylight is like the anti-power ballad like it is a it's It's like the power ballad backwards yeah it's constructed like a power ballad i mean it's got a quiet verse and a big you know anthemic chorus but the lyrics the the whole kind of creepiness of the verses giving way to the like the majestic choruses it's it's a really amazing closer it's like when i think of like great album closers this is up there for me as one of my favorite of all time i think this single track you know kind of again leading back into saturday savior like if you're gonna flip the vinyl back over like 
you really do go on a journey over the course of these songs. And Daylight has a great performance, a great vocal performance, and one of my favorite guitar solos. You know, and we didn't, we haven't talked about this yet, but when you think about the role of a guitar and the role of a guitar player and a bass player and a drummer, like because these guys as a trio are so interlocked with each other, there's a real like kind of blending, a blurring of the lines that occurs. Uh, but Daylight has one of the few stereotypical guitar hero moments. There's a big solo section. Uh, and then, of course, unlike what you would expect, it's it's kind of the anti-guitar solo. It's, it's, it's not noise. It's not like I'm purposely playing wrong notes, but it's just super, it's, it's reduced down to its simplest parts. Uh, and I, I think it's, it's genius. And this is way more, I mean, we've done a lot of dream theater podcasts and I, I, I feel like that band and John Petrucci in, in particular, because he's had moments like that where he's gone to one end of the spectrum and then the other, you know, it seems like they've kind of lost sight of that ebb and flow a little bit. And he's always on 10. And I kind of wish there was more Absolutely. moments like, like this from him, you know, like, uh, you know what we're going to do for this 60-second part? I'm just going to play, like, two notes and, like, let feedback kind of carry it all. Like, that's that's all it needs. That's all I want to do. You know, it doesn't have to be some crazy orchestrated thing, uh, especially when the rest of the track is so orchestrated. So I, I can't say enough about Daylight. It really caps off what, to me, uh, even with Blank, I, I consider this a perfect album in that a perfect album for me as I define it is something that I listen to and don't skip anything. Uh, and that I can come back to over and over again. And there's not a lot of albums that I can say that about, uh, but this is one of them. And I think it's a, you know, definitely their crowning achievement. Carl, do you, have you heard, you know, the band would essentially make this record, do one final tour, go their separate ways, side projects would abound. And then, you know, almost 20 years later, they would they would start to play some shows together again. A live EP was put out. And then 2015, The Heart is a Monster was released as the follow-up. Now, we don't have to go into the album in depth, but have you heard The Heart is a Monster, and do you have thoughts on it as a follow-up to Fantastic Planet? Yeah, it's great. I like it. I One of these days, we do like a whole podcast on failure. That's going to be fun, because Heart is a Monster was good. I liked it. I liked it a lot. And I like that it starts off with Segway 4. Um, yeah, which, exactly. One, yeah, it's great. Okay. And it's... Um, I. I don't know. I because Fantastic Planet is so classic to me. I might actually think Heart as a Monster is a better album. I'm not sure because I probably listened to Fantastic Planet 500 times and I might have listened to Heart as a Monster 15. But the Heart of a Monster, a Heart is a Monster, is a pretty good freaking album. Yeah, no, it's it was a it's a worthwhile follow up, and I'm glad that they, you know, you can go one of two ways. You can you can you know, kind of like leave the elephant in the room alone, or you can just address it and say, nope, this is the next record, and we're just going to pick up where we left off and segue four and segue five, you know, and they're just going to, it's just very thematically connected, uh, a lot of the same lyrical themes. Carl, this record, you know, Greg Edwards and, and Ken Andrews would eventually split and go their separate ways, you know, so there there is discord. Uh, not necessarily, I think, you know, I don't know that there was a lot of like fighting or angst. I think it was just the band hadn't really achieved what they had wanted to, and I think the the process had kind of worn them down. Do you feel like that this being kind of the last record they made for you know what was almost twenty years helped it in retrospect? Had they continued making records and maybe records that weren't as good, would it would it have sullied their reputation? Is it better to burn out than to fade away? 
What are your thoughts on that? I think it depends on what she did and how big the album was. Um, mm-hmm. I, because I, I mean, Def Leppard's made a ton of really shitty albums since Hysteria, and I don't think anybody thinks any less of Hysteria That's or a them good point. for it. But, That's a great point. Yeah, but Hysteria was also one of the most popular albums in music history. Um, Failure and fan, Fantastic Planet, nobody knows Fantastic Planet. It's not one of the most popular albums in music history, so it's kind of hard. I think that um, you know, fans of really great but lesser-known acts, um, they tend... God, this is going to sound like such an elitist douchebag thing to say, but they tend to be smarter um, about what they listen to because they tend to be very picky. I think they tend to be more informed, and I think they tend to take a band's career into better context. I, I, I think that Failure could have made three or four really shit albums after this and I, people are going to know what the difference was and, and they'll and they'll read more of the interviews and they'll be more informed it's kind of like baseball like if a if a baseball team wins the world series in the next four years they have a they, they play like shit well baseball fans know the information you know they know it's not going to change what they feel about that season it's just going to be that was this this is then and you know and I, I think fans of bands like this tend to be kind of the same way they'll know the, nobody else will know, but they'll know that this was one of the best albums ever, and they'll know that the next three were bad because they weren't their heads weren't in it. Somebody was going through a divorce, or someone slept with somebody else's wife, or two guys weren't into it, and this third guy was doing. They'll know. They'll know the whole story, and they'll kind of have the better perspective on it. But me personally, had they made three or four shit albums after this, I, I yeah, it would have been bummed me out, but I wouldn't have thought any different about Fantastic Planet. Just uh, for some context, in 2009, Just Press Play named Fantastic Planet the third best album of the 90s and also ranked the song The Nurse Who Loved Me at number 10 in its top 100 songs of the 90s list. Uh, and the album was issued in uh, on vinyl in 2015. So I'm not sure if it's still available. I know it was through the band's website. So yes, those are all I couldn't all find it for in- cheaper than like 150 bucks. That's why I didn't buy it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I so, wanted so, to. <laughs> well, and yeah, it was probably a limited run. So yeah, I yeah. Oh man, I I gotta get I I've been buying records, uh, but not as frequently as I want. But I I like when I'm at home and I'm listening to music. It's exclusively vinyl, and I like the the kind of purposeful interaction that it is. It's a deliberate choice to yes. to listen to a record. You know, you have to get up and flip it. You can't. It's not background music. It's not you know. And I. And we're a little bit older, you know, so I think we both we grew up and that that's not abnormal. That's how I've always listened to music. So I enjoy that. Uh, But I'm sad for not sad. I guess it is what it is. Every generation has their own normal. But I'm glad that the way I listened to music is still an option now, if that makes sense. So, yes, Carl, to tie all this up. So we've. Failure of Fantastic Planet is obviously a classic album. We obviously enjoy it. Uh, we obviously had a lot of really good things to say about it. Do you have a favorite song, a favorite moment, a favorite lyric? Is there something that if you had to whittle it down to one one track, could you? Um, God, I don't know. I, it's hard. I, I think that uh, I would say that if you were to... If you were to tell, if you were to ask me, what would be the one song that kind of captures what every 
think and what everybody can do here uh, between Andrews and Edwards, I guess, is everybody. Um, I would say it's Pitiful or Leo. Um, and I think I might lean on Pitiful. I, I think Pitiful might do the best to kind of capture the best um, middle point of what everybody can contribute to a tune. Well, I don't know. Maybe stuck on you. It's hard. Um, it's really kind of hard for me to pick a favorite tune because I think I said 90% of this album could be my favorite song on the album. Um, but I want to say Pitiful or Leo. Yeah, no, I I couldn't agree more. I guess if taking that train of thought, I guess if I was going to select a song and really you could probably just throw a dart at the thing and whatever track it lands on like because it they it none of them are it's not like it's not like any of these songs that don't do justice to their legacy or who they are as a band Uh, i'd probably give somebody daylight and say check this out if you dig this song then everything else on this record is going to really kind of fill in the gaps for you uh, but really, I mean, you could say the same thing about Saturday Savior, Stuck on You, or even Solaris, I think, is, uh, or, you know, Dirty Blue Balloons. I think any of these tracks, but I would I would pick Daylight. I, it's my personal favorite performance from, from the three of them. I think it's kind of that, that mastery of the space and then the negative space. Uh, a lot yeah. of bands, you know, really, like, when I think of post-rock and I think of, uh, uh, kind of the the offshoots of that shoegaze and space rock really as a reaction to kind of the muscular like riff filled alt rock of the 90s a lot of bands started embracing the like kind of more classical mu- music elements you know ebbing and flowing uh crescendoing and uh and builds and and drops and things like that uh that's not to say that that music didn't become formulaic in a way i, I think if you've heard one explosions in the sky record you might have heard them all uh there is a formula to it but you know, on a record like this, there's a lot of really good examples of where the band doesn't fill in everything with guitar riffs and vocals and this and that, and kind of embraces the the, the quiet parts to make the the more aggressive parts heavier feeling or more grand and epic. And I think that's that was kind of my takeaway from from this band and this record. It's really affected kind of how I listen to music ever since I've heard it. So I'm very happy they're continuing to make music. I'm very happy that they. You know, I think this record is, is, if anything, more appreciated now than it's ever been and continues to be. It's very much the classic cult record uh, in every way you define that. So I, I think I, I, that's, that's my final thoughts. Do you have anything final you want to add about this? Yes. Um, no, I just, uh, you know, aside from blank, this is a 99.9 out of 100 for me, you know. Um, and the heart is a monster was a great follow-up. So I, you know, if they can't keep it going because they just don't work well together, or whatever, they gave me this and they gave me another great one. And you can still listen to Ken Andrews and Greg Edwards do their thing uh, in different ways too. So if they uh, if they keep on keeping on, great. If they don't, you know, we can't take what they've already given me. So I like it, I dig it, and I kind of hope that we get something else out of them too. All right, guys. So until next time, email us at geekusapodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter, geekusa underscore podcast.